This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me speaking to you from Vox Media headquarters in New York City. You get two podcasts for the price of one here. It's free. You're welcome. First up, we're talking to Dan Pfeiffer. He's uh, one of the contributors at Pod Save America. He's been on this show before. He's a former comms guy for the Obama White House. He's got a book to tell you about. But I wanted to talk to him about the 2020 race uh, and his insights into how those things are shaping up specifically the way the candidates are using TV and the internet and the lessons they have and haven't learned from 2016. It is a good, short conversation. Next up, after Dan, Meryl Stubbs and Amanda Hesser, co-founders of a site called Food52, which they sold for a chunk of money last fall, surprising many people, including the person speaking to you right now on this microphone. We talked about that. We talked about how they built an overnight sensation in 10 years, why they're still running this company and what happens next. Um, this is a really good conversation. It's been sticking around in my head for a while. I want to write about it a little bit as well, trying to figure out why I didn't understand how successful this company had been. You listen, you let me know what you think. First, here's Dan. Talking again to one of my favorite guests at Recode Media, Dan Pfeiffer, former White House comms boss, author of now two books. One of them is called Untrumping America, which I believe you can probably buy now as we're speaking. Welcome, Dan. Thanks for having me. I know, you're, I know you are in a rush because you're promoting this book to lots of folks. So I won't take a ton of your time, but I did want to talk to you a bit about the 2020 campaign and the way you're seeing both the Democrats and Republicans use media. You spent a lot of time talking about the idea that the, the Democrats probably aren't using the internet as well as they should. Donald Trump seems to have done a very good job with it on Facebook last year. A lot of the, lot of the headlines I'm seeing the last few weeks are about spending on television, though. It feels like we're sort of in the same campaign we've been in for a very long time. Has, has something fundamentally changed about the way the, the campaigns are using media? No, I think we're still, for the most part, doing it the same way we've done it for a long time. And that's in part driven by the incentives for a campaign in the Democratic primary are much more old world media than new world, right? There's an audience of people who still consume mainstream media at a high volume. It's Iowa in particular, is a lot of older voters who still watch television. And so the strategies that the campaigns are using in the primary don't really are not the same ones you'll need in a general to keep up. Do you think that will shift? Do you think you'll see whether it's, well, you name your candidate, uh, whoever the Democratic nominee eventually is, do you think they will shift to a different media strategy at some point this summer? It depends on the nominee. I think that the two campaigns that have shown the most sophisticated understanding of, I think, the modern media environment and the sort of the incentives of operating in a Trumpian, Facebook-driven world are the Sanders campaign and the Buttigieg campaign. And they have sort of different approaches, but they both, uh, I think, understand how this world works in the best way. And what about Bloomberg, who's spending very heavily on TV and has gone from a non-candidate to at least someone people are kind of taking seriously? He's spending hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, but he's still um, buying much more TV than he is the internet. I'll add on to that. His internet strategy seems specifically designed to take on Trump, right? He's being punchy. He's sending out angry tweets. He's doing funny memes. Has he picked up on something that someone else hasn't? Oh, for sure. But it, it's sort of, it's unfair to compare Bloomberg to any other 
politician walking the face of the planet because he has the ability to spend $200 million on TV and then $50 million on digital. And then he has the ability to pay a bunch of influencers to post memes about him because he doesn't have to make any resource-based decisions. And his campaign is a fascinating, I think, experiment as uh, New York Times columnist and Charlie Warzel yep. wrote, which is he's using data, he's, he's doing everything, right? So yeah, TV works for a lot of voters, he's going to do TV. Digital work for other voters, he's going to do that. Influencer-driven campaigns work for other set of voters, he can do that. No one else, even Trump and the Republicans, have that opportunity. So he's like the guy at the buffet saying, give me all of that. Yes, he, and he, right. He can, he can afford, he can afford everything. And so he's doing everything. And, but, and I think it's very fair to say that his campaign is incredibly sophisticated in how they think about data and, um, in sort of measurement of various tactics, but they also can do everything. So they're doing everything. And so it's, it's, it's interesting to watch, uh, from afar for sure. When you say they're sophisticated, are you drawing that because you've talked to them and you're able to sort of actually get in there and look under the hood and see what they're doing or they just seem sophisticated? What my, like, I don't have intimate knowledge of what Uh they're doing, but I have talked to people who work on that campaign and I have, uh, you know, talked to people who are, you know, involved in, in, on the outside and they definitely, they have the ability to buy and to, or the ability to acquire very sophisticated sets of data and then use them and the ability, like they don't, they can run thousands upon iterations of various pieces of content because they can afford that and they can do it at scale in ways other campaigns haven't. And so it's not that they are necessarily, I think, smarter than the other campaigns. They may be smarter than some or not as smart as others, but they just they can do everything. And they can if they need more people, they hire more people. If they need a technology platform, they buy it. Right, so they may or may not be smart, but they definitely have essentially unlimited money. Yeah, I think they are smart, but what, I don't, but they uh, they have advantages that no other campaign has had in the history of time. I'm always sort of uh, wary about assessing, uh, at least when it comes to digital, a campaign strength and capacity. And we saw after 2016 and still going on today, the, the Trump campaign saying that they were geniuses for figuring out Facebook. Uh, Facebook has essentially co-signed that. They had an executive saying they ran the best campaign ever. Um, is there something that you truly have to understand about Facebook to run a good Facebook campaign? Or is it something that you know, if you look at who was running that campaign for Trump, it doesn't look like they'd hired the best and the brightest. Is it something that is relatively easy to understand? Uh, I think it is bringing a digital marketing mindset to politics, which I think was lacking in some ways on the other side. I definitely think that there is a legend of how Trump ran his campaign that outstrips the reality and it's in the interest of both Facebook and and his campaign to make it seem like it was secret sauce when it was I think some things that that some pretty competent digital marketers could have done anyway but they they maximize their advantage and I also think it's fair to say that Facebook the the incentives that drive the Facebook algorithm make life a lot easier for the sort of content that Trump wants to put out there as opposed to the content that the Clinton campaign or other Democrats wanted to put out there. I think we understand how that works. And this will get us right into your book. Do you think that the campaigns have learned the right lessons from 2016? And or are you worried about them fighting sort of a, a war from four years ago and missing what's going on now? I I worry that maybe Democrats are too obsessed with the 2016 election as the model for what we have to do in 2020. It's very possible we'll look back on that campaign in history and see it as a black swan event, where if you would run a computer simulation of that campaign 100,000 times, Hillary Clinton wins 95% of those simulations. Because just the combination of Russian interference, Jim Comey's letter, Hillary Clinton's health issue at the September 11th event, all these things that happened that were incredibly um, unique events that wouldn't happen in every campaign drove an outcome in a race decided by less than 100,000 votes in three states. I actually think the election that Democrats need to pay more attention to is the 2012 election. Because running in an open seat race is very different than running against an incumbent. And I think there are a lot of lessons from the mistakes that Mitt Romney made in 2012 that Democrats have to make sure they, have, they do not replicate in 2020. So let's speak about uh, a few of the lessons you would like them to understand. Uh, this this is, I guess, the premise of your book, right? On Trumping America, a plan to make America democracy again? Right. The premise of my book and the reason I wrote it was because I think there are two fundamental driving ideas. One is there is nothing more important than beating Trump. 
And we have to think very hard about how we do that. And that requires understanding who we're up against and what we're up against. But also beating Trump is not enough. And that Trump is not an aberration. He's sort of the logical extension of the Republican Party. And the next president's could probably, the next Republican leader or presidential candidate or president is going to be probably a smarter version of Trump. And we should be very scared of that. And so the lessons for the for this election 2020 I wanted Democrats to learn are one, we have to recognize that contrary to conventional wisdom, we want this election to be a choice, not a referendum. Voters are not dumb. They have a very, the voters that we care about who pulled the lever for Trump in 2016, they didn't go in there with the wool pulled over their eyes. They knew who Trump was. They just thought the system was so broken that they were willing to take a risk on Trump. So if we spend all of our time just yelling about how crass Trump is or how racist he is or how misogynistic he is or um, how embarrassing he is, we're not going to convince people why we, who, we being the whoever the Democratic nominee is, is the better choice. So we actually have to swerve out of the lane and make sure we are spending, the Democratic nominee spending time talking about themselves. Because breaking through in the Trump media environment where we're always one tweet away from a five-day feeding frenzy is really hard. And so it's going to, that's where we should put our time and energy. And Trump will spend a lot of, this is not to say you don't make an argument against Trump. You have to do that. But it has, but it, the predicate has to be set about who the Democrat is and why the voters who took a gamble on Trump in 2016 should take a gamble on a, on someone else in 2020. Dan, this is not really on on uh, on message, but I have noticed that uh, a couple podcast companies have sold for a lot of money in the in the last couple of weeks. You guys thinking uh, what what the folks at Crooked Media might be doing? You know that is a question for John, John, and Tommy, who are the founders. I am I'm just talent in this in this equation. So I'm going to describe you as a person with knowledge of the situation. <laughs> yeah, my knowledge tells me I have no knowledge of any situation um, and don't know of anything afoot. Well, good luck to you all. Good luck with the book. Thanks for your time, Dan. Absolutely. Thank you, Peter. And now here are the co-founders of Food 52, Meryl Stubbs and Amanda Hesser. My guests here today are people I wanted to talk to for quite a while, Amanda Hesser, Meryl Stubbs. They are the co-founders of Food 52. If you follow my writing in addition to the podcast, you know these guys sold a majority stake. Amanda's looking at me very, very seriously. Didn't sell her whole company. Sold a majority stake in their company <laughs> last fall to the Chernin <laughs> Group after founding it how long ago? In 2009. 2009. So, so 10, 10 years. years mm-hmm. Grinding it out. Overnight success. Overnight success. <laughs> Rocket ship. I will. So that's Amanda talking, and that's Meryl. Say hi, Meryl. Hi. Hi. I am a, I will say I'm a little, I think I said this when I wrote it, I was a little surprised that this worked out for you guys just because, <laughs> and Amanda always knows I'm, I'm, uh, I'm candid, when, when you first told me about what you were doing, I said, that sounds interesting. You've got a recipe site. There are a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll probably have to get really, really big. It didn't seem like you ever got really, really big. At one point, you started focusing on commerce. A lot of people were trying to sell stuff as well. I thought, all right, we got it really big for that. And I just sort of imagined that you guys would end up being absorbed by a bigger thing or decide at some point that it wasn't going to work out. Obviously, I was completely wrong. So, in <laughs> did, addition, you think, did you think we didn't know the food space? I thought that you guys knew the food space pretty well, but lots of people know lots of spaces. It doesn't yeah. mean your companies succeed. Most companies don't succeed. So that's what I wanted to talk about, how you got into the business, how you made it work, what I got wrong. Well, I, I but I do think that that's worth pausing yeah. on because I do think like the domain expertise that we came to this with allowed us to see the opportunity in a way that just an entrepreneur just, you know, like kind of diving into the food space wouldn't necessarily. So let's talk about your expertise. Great. Um, I knew know? I knew about Amanda Hester before she was an entrepreneur because I read her stuff in the New York Times. Um, and you seemed like you had a particularly cool job. You got to write recipes. You had this column that was part recipes, part sort of New York singles diary. <laughs> I remember sort of swooning over. I thought it was really cool. Uh, Meryl, I didn't know until afterwards. But so why don't we just quickly walk through what you were doing prior to launching the company? Yeah, I was swooning over Amanda's yeah, exactly. stories too. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we were both immersed in this world. Uh, we both um, went to cooking school. I cooked professionally. Meryl had a catering business in Boston. 
Um, but I also then worked at the New York Times. And yeah, I mean, I had this sort of dream job because I got to travel around the world. I got to write about kind of whatever I wanted in the food world. I mean, you, the part you mentioned was a particular column that I wrote yeah. for the magazine that was kind of like a food blog before blogs. I mean, um, you were a standout yeah. food writer at the New York Times. Um, there was not, not a long list of them. You had what seemed like sort of the dream job. Most people would stay in that job for a very long time. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, but I kind of figured out over time that I was not cut out for um, <laughs> corporate life. Okay. You were there for a while. I was. I mean, yeah, like 11 years is not a short Yeah, yeah no, of time. I was there, you know, yeah, my, yeah, I was a staff writer for. You're like one of those lawyers who figures out like eight years after. <laughs> after law school and being a partner. I don't but know when they don't make partner. Yeah, exactly. But, my husband but a decade, out the other day. A, a decade at, at the Times is not that long, actually. Yeah. I mean, now it sounds yeah. like a crazy long time in any yeah. job, but actually m many of my peers who started at the same time are still there. Lifers. They're lifers, So yeah. you guys both know food. You know the food industry. Yeah. You had a sense of sort of the economics, at least of restaurants, I would imagine, mm -hmm. and other parts of the food industry, which is different than knowing about publishing a website about food and eventually selling cookware and other products. Well, I think what we really knew, we knew all of those things, or at least some some things about all of those things. But I think the thing that we did know and we were very close to for a long time that allowed us to see this opportunity was we were kind of looped into this community of real people who cook. Outside of restaurants, outside of food food media, mm -hmm. in terms of the experts, you know, it's outside of cookbook authors. We were covering, like, real people. What are they cooking? We were spending time with real people in our in our personal lives. I mean, we're both very much home cooks at heart, even though we train professionally. I don't think we either either of us had aspirations to work, you know, in restaurants for our careers. Right. So, we both gravitated towards. Really, sort of the mentality, the mindset, the needs, the wants of the home cook. And that's very much what we uh, were paying attention to and talking to friends and going to, you know, underground dinner parties and food swaps and and covering all of this sort of like energy that was bubbling and really wasn't being reflected online except with the proliferation of food blogs, which was happening. Yeah, I mean— Food writing and like the need for recipes has been around for a very long time. Yep, and so it's, it's a one long... of the first things the internet figured out is this would be a yeah. really good way to swap recipes. Right. I mean, it's it's a sort of long-standing tradition in journalism and or service journal journalism to have food writing and recipes. And so we knew. I mean, that need was not going to go away, but it was something else. It was something bigger that we started seeing this seismic shift in culturally that people were seeing food. Like beyond just the kitchen, it was like it was becoming like how they ate, ate and like where they ate and where they shopped and, you know, how they designed their kitchens, where they, you know, ate when they traveled. That was all becoming like a, a big part of their identities. Um, and so we felt like that was what was not being responded to. It was like online, there were these recipe sites and it felt just so narrow and so not... Um, it wasn't taking advantage, in our view, of, you know, the sort of this 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 larger cultural shift and this opportunity to really create a world where you you saw food in a broader context. So you guys start pitching this concept when, 2008-ish? No, actually not till 2000—well, no, so to, what we did was in—sorry, 2008, we sold— was, was it? it? No, it was actually it was early, early, 2009. early 2009. We sold a book deal yeah. to bootstrap the building of the site. That was the, the intent. Concept. We're going yeah. to fund this by yeah. selling we a book. We pitched that yeah. to publishers. Yeah. 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 Or a publisher. Yeah. <laughs> and like I had spent the year before working on a very different non food startup. So right. I was already in the. That had a know, great like, name. I, what was it called? Sea Winkle. Sea Winkle. Google it. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I think that was where, like, you know, you you said like well you know there's a big difference between being like a writer and then building like a business but you know I think that that interest was already there and also seeing what it was you know what it was like to sort of dive into a startup kind of had a sense that this was a direction that I like in a world that where I felt comfortable and Meryl and I then when we had this idea we felt like well this is this is what we want to do. Um, there tend to be two avenues people take when they start. A company, and that is either they bootstrap or they take an idea and they 
build a great story around it. And, you know, yes, they use some data, but a lot of it is kind of... Tell, I'm going to tell you a story, and you're yeah, going to mm-hmm. believe in it, and you're going to believe in me, and you're going to throw some money at me. And if you're smart, you realize you may never see the money again, but that's the way it goes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're kind of like two different personality types for entrepreneurs. And we happen to be the proof of—we'd rather do a proof of concept and, and bootstrap and be scrappy and then sell once we know exactly what we're selling. So you're the first founders I've ever met who, who started their company by selling a, a book. <laughs> So that's I cool. wonder if we're the only ones. That what would be was, interesting. What was the, what yeah. was the book? What was the name? Uh, it was the Food 52 Food, Okay, so from yeah. the beginning, yeah. we're branding this, we're yeah. selling it. It was yeah. actually two books. We got a yes. two-book deal. And we convinced the publisher, who was this really great forward-thinking guy named Bob Miller, who was working at HarperCollins, but he was starting a new imprint there, which was kind of embracing this new model of giving smaller advances and bigger cuts on the back end. Mm-hmm. And he was he was looking for, I think, very sort of current ideas. And so he immediately gravitated towards this idea of using digital media to create, you know, a print product. And he basically said, so how many, how many books do you want to write? And we said, let's start with two. And by the way, can you give us the advance for both? Because we need to build this website quickly. <laughs> so we were able to get $100,000 in cash right away. Yeah. So does the and website was, go up before the book goes out? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. You have to, it has to because that's actually we're using the site in to order to produce, book. well, to produce the content yeah. for the book and to like dr- bring people together and to be able to contribute recipes and test them and like have these recipe contests and like really prove this concept of like that you can you know, crowdsource and curate and create this community-driven hub with great quality content. See, so sell a book proposal mm-hmm. so you can fund a website so that you can create content that you can use to then produce that book. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. And with the ideal, <laughs> you know, idea that in a perfect world, it all, like, not only do we get a great book out of it, but we get the, you know, foundation of a great company. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we can keep going. And so, how'd that go? So it, it, was, went. it was so easy. Um, <laughs> that was, so this is that 2000, was 2009, New York City. <laughs> yeah. There's a little bubble, uh, not bubble, but a bubbling of sort of interest in the internet that hasn't yeah. been there prior to then. So you get companies like Tumblr and Foursquare coming yeah. out of it. Um, I always think of Twitter sort of as a New York company because yep. they're getting money from from Union Square Ventures. Um, and just a little, it's not, it's, it's definitely not a, a, a hotbed of tech, but there's a little bit of interest in it. So what point did you have to go out and then ask actual investors for money? So we launched in September of 2009, and it immediately got traction. Actually, it got traction before it launched. So we felt like we were on to something, and we could see that <laughs> at some point in the next probably 12 months, we would start running out of money yeah. um, unless we suddenly figured out a you know new and exciting revenue stream, which we were. We did do advertising, but we you know it was pretty minimal, and because we were really focused, our, it was just the two of us. So we were focusing our time really on building this you know the brand and the and the community. So so in the beginning of two, I would say like spring of 2010 is when we started talking to investors. And all along, you know, there were a handful of people who we were having conversations with who were, you know, giving us advice and guidance. And um, and actually, it was sort of like, you know, speaking to what you were just talking about, it being this kind of sort of burgeoning, you know, tech community in New York. That was sort of, it was sort of great days because you could, you know, we could call up, you know, Kenny Lair and he would take a meeting with us. Yeah, you could get meetings um, with a lot of people you might yeah. be able that to. Was, you so could get everybody now. in a room, basically. Yeah, yeah. You could go to the New York tech meeting up and meet just about yeah, everybody exactly. who was doing went to tech a lot of meetups back, oh, yeah. back mm-hmm. in those days. Um, so I, what I was trying to get to is when yeah. you're pitching this out to other people, are they giving you the same cynical, burnt-out response that I'm giving you, which is, oh, nice, a food site, there's a million of them, and you're going to get steamrolled by pick your giant internet company? Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, definitely a lot of people said that, but it was the ones who did not and who took the time to really understand the two of us, get to know us, understand our vision and why this could be different, who were the people who ultimately invested. And and those are the investors we wanted. I actually think in some ways the doubts were less around food as a space. Yeah. It was actually more about, like, we, we felt at that time, and I think looking back still feel this way, that investors— of that era were not focused at all on brand and did not value it. And it is a hard thing to quantify, right? Um, And it also, for the most part, you cannot 
really have hyper growth of a company if you're building a brand. It's just, you know, brands are not born overnight. And um, So if you're growing really fast, it probably means you don't have a strong brand. It means you're growing for some other reason. It probably means you're putting, uh, you're doing a fair amount of paid marketing. I mean, I'm making like, uh-huh. you know, sort of a Great. big generalization, but I think we've all seen this this play out that, you know, if you want to have really fast growth, you are going to have to kind of pay customers to pay attention to you as opposed to wait for them to discover you or hear about you from their friends in, in this very kind of genuine and in our in our view, lasting way. It just takes more time. And we felt like that that we were we wanted to build a company that had meaning and that people you know meaning to people and that they felt like emotionally connected to you can't create that emotional connection on like the first time they click through to your site it takes time so just to continue the the cynical slash devil advocate okay. uh, role that I always have. Um, <laughs> every time I talk to someone who runs a company and I ask them about the future or wherever things are going to shake out, they say, you got to have a strong brand. We have a strong brand. Maybe every one of them does. Um, but again, I'm sure investors hear people say, well, we're going to have a strong brand or we have a strong brand <laughs> and that's going to solve this problem. I'm assuming that when you gave someone that very effective speech, you just gave me, a lot of times they said, yeah, but still. Yeah. That's my devil's advocate. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. probably more more so than they would now when I do think that's become sort of a fashionable thing to say. I don't even know if we were saying it in that way, though, at the time. I don't think we were. It, it was more about, again, sort of the broader vision and this way of serving the consumer, which at the time was really readers, that we were talking about. It was more of the approach rather than we are going to build a brand, even though that's what ultimately— we were thinking about. I don't think we were using that language at the time. And was the plan advertising is never going to be sufficient enough from the get-go and we're going to absolutely move into other stuff or did that come later? The former. Yeah, Yeah, the former. And I would say we were just really like super focused on our reader and consumer and and like giving them a great experience. We, We were betting on the fact that if we could create this world, we were serving people in this comprehensive fashion that was not, that no other brand was in our space, that the revenue model would evolve and follow and actually build a bigger company than you could if you were just focused on advertising or just focused on, you know, affiliate sales or commerce. And at that time, actually, like we had, it's funny because we, in our old decks, we do have commerce, (laughs) Um, but it took like a lot of different forms over time because, frankly, commerce was, you know, evolving, you know, moment to moment. Like, for instance, affiliate sales were not a thing that Lots of companies did, and so dropping a link I mean, to a story. Amazon, yeah, we recommend barely this, launched we, it. Right, we recommend yeah. this pan. You can buy it through Amazon. If you buy it, we get X amount. Of yeah, money. I mean, very few companies, very few were, were drop shipping at that time. Um, we'll explain what drop shipping is. Oh, it's sorry, one, drop. One, it's one of my favorite yeah. terms. I just want you to explain. Okay, it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it sounds like the future. <laughs> uh, I always think of drop kick, like someone's just dropping the package and <laughs> kicking it off, kicking it in your direction. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that. Well, it's sort of like <laughs> order comes. In other words, we are the as a drop shipper, we are the merchant of record. So if if you order on our site, like we process the order, the shipping label and, and order slip goes to directly to the merchant. They package it for us and they ship it off for us. And then if you have a customer care issue, it comes to us. Right. So, so in other words, we're the, dropping the, right. the the order to the the actual. You're shipper. the front of the store, except there's nothing in your store. That's, that's right. There's no inventory. inventory. There's no inventory. That's correct. But you know, it's more complicated than that. Obviously, it's like you know, it's not. Like we just, you know, sign up with, you know, a merchant that or a vendor we're working with and they, you know, we're agreeing to how many, how, sure. even, even if it's, you know, just their products, you know, we're, we're doing, um, projections of like how, how many units we'll be able to sell. And there's like, there's a whole like relationship. I mean, there is that. like a really like fast and loose and like very bare bones drop shipping that I think you see a lot on Instagram now where it's some man or woman somewhere and they put up an ad on Instagram and maybe they've never even seen the product before, but someone in China is going to send it and the entire transaction sort of happens away from them. They just basically bought an Instagram ad. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I actually think that was sort of the impression of what drop shipping like was, with that it was like kind of impersonal and that the person selling you the product didn't really have this connection to yeah. it. The way we do it is very different and I would say that the way other you know people do drop ship these days is... I mean, I, I think it's becoming this more 
um, common model because, you know, manufacturers are realizing that, like, the that the companies selling their products don't necessarily want, you know, to hold the inventory yeah. and that they can— you know, that, that there are just new models that have have evolved since we started our company and that are continuing to evolve. I mean, when we started Commerce, which was 2013, there were many companies that we now sell their products, but who at that point said, no, sorry, we don't drop ship or we won't drop ship for you. So I was just looking at this article that my colleague wrote, um, but it reads like I wrote it uh, from 2013 when you guys said, we're now selling stuff. Yeah. And it said, oh, go ahead, roll your eyes. Another content company that says they're doing commerce because apparently this was a mini trend at the time. Um, but this now is your business, right? I, I saw some stat from somewhere that said you 75% of your revenue is now mm-hmm. is commerce. You're yeah. selling something. Yeah. And we have something our own, that you, your own brand or someone else's. Y- yes, and we have our own product line now. Okay, so we are, we are still an ad-based business here. So we're going to take a quick break so you can hear from a fine Recode <laughs> media sponsor. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Back here with Meryl Stubbs and Amanda Hesser, Food 52, which, as we said, is a great success despite my initial cynicism. (laughs) Have you come around completely, you think? It seems like it's worked. We think so. <laughs> it's, and I, I was on the site today. There's a great-looking cauliflower soup that I think I'm going to make. It looks incredibly easy. Onions and cauliflower, that's it. Oh, Put yeah. Put it in a blender. Mm-hmm. I'm making that. Yep. I know that one. So in between starting off with ads and now getting to this place where you're mostly commerce, did you take any other right or left turns that didn't work out? Or was this sort of a stand, a, a relatively linear progression for you guys? Well, we tried some things that didn't work out, but I we've never— done anything that we would consider a pivot in the true like sense. You didn't put up a paywall or... No. no. I mean, we, we built a couple apps that, you know, didn't really go anywhere. As one does. Yeah. But other than that... We had a food news section at some point. We did. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Did, yeah. you, did you have a Facebook moment? We... Thankfully not. No. Why not? I mean, we... When I mean, everyone we still was telling ha- you we, that you needed to go to Facebook to build your and business. And do everything on Facebook. We just... Yeah. yeah we've kind of been pretty steady. But we, you know, obviously we built a Facebook community and we are still very active there and still believe in that, but we weren't we weren't about to, you know, start shifting our whole business. I mean, the same thing with Snapchat. Everyone there was the period when everyone was like you have to do Snapchat, you know, all the time and and we just felt like it didn't it didn't feel like our brand, like the right kind of uh environment for our brand. And so we What's your we TikTok held off. strategy. Well, that we were sort of TBD. like, we're, yeah, TBD. But Instagram, <laughs> like, you know, was such an obvious was created for yeah, us. Yeah, I, I do. So. <laughs> so, so, you know, I think we we tend to, I would say we are trend diverse um, because we want to carve our own path, and it's it's hard to maintain that discipline, especially you know when, you know, you have a lot of people kind of barking people at in your you, ear, mm-hmm. and then also if you keep going down one path, you may be missing stuff, right? So you mm-hmm. do want the opportunity or flexibility to try stuff. You guys are still a lean company. How many How many employees? We're about 95. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you do want to take a stab at Instagram and figure out, do you have to like, how do you, how do you figure out sort of the mechanics of, all right, we're going to take someone who's already doing some other job and have them move over to Instagram or are we going to hire an Instagram person? How do you, how do you the work former. that out? Yeah. yeah. We're always, you know, so a good example of that is on on Monday, we're going to launch Home 52. So we got the, that Instagram handle. And um, so when and you so hear this, existing, you can go look at Home 52 on Instagram. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, we, our existing social team is just going to tackle that in addition to all the other stuff they're doing. And then we'll see what kind of traction it gets and what kind of, you know, how much work and time it demands. So between 2009 and 2019, was there a moment where you guys thought, this is not going to work out and we're going to have to figure something else out? Or did you feel reasonably, for Peter Kafka aside, we think we've had this figured out? I don't think we ever had um, that moment of like, this isn't going to work. I think we had plenty of moments of worrying about cash. So uh, how, how close did you get to running out 
Very. <laughs> Days? I mean, for no, us. No, no, no. We're I was going to say, I was just going to say, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, compared to um, what we hear, yeah. not very. We weren't that close to the sun, but it, but it felt to us like we were. And at that point, do you go, we got to go? I mean, so eventually you took on some debt, right? You raised, I think, $20 million, include some debt. Was that was well, debt we, what got you over that? or or? Well, we what? did the debt because it wasn't very expensive mm-hmm. at the time. And also, you know, it was a way to, you know, bring in some cash that we could, you know, put towards things without having to, you know, go through another kind of, you know, complicated raise, diluting mm-hmm. all the shareholders. Yep. You know, it, it, it seemed to, to us not a— a, like the the necessary alternative, but actually an appealing alternative. So yeah, it was strategic you, rather than, you and, know, sorry, no, reactive. <laughs> and when and when you were at that moment, you're like, oh, we are flying too close to the sun. We're in, what turns that around? I mean, I think those moments happened for us. I can't think of any exceptions when we were already kind of in the process of talking to investors, usually, or or thinking about. Um, because you don't want to be raising money when you're running out of money. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, we always tried to get get ahead of it and, and, you know, raise from a position of strength. I mean, I, I'm trying to remember before we got the Whole Foods deal what our cash situation was like because that was a pretty big influx. Oh, yeah. Early on. Well, before we raised our first, our seed round, we had a moment of— I would say. Yeah, that was a low moment. Yeah, it was a low moment where we, we were just concerned. We, we were we had a lot of interest, but we were having trouble getting it closed. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, somebody who was interested in investing and who did invest was, you know, kind of sharing a concern that, like, you know, deals are all about momentum. And if you, you know, if you can't get this closed soon, that's going to—it's just going to be tougher and tougher. And, like, to Meryl's point that she just made, like, we didn't feel at all that we were—we felt like we had a real company on our hands. Yeah. And, we, and it had amazing potential, but, it was like, it, could, it <laughs> couldn't run on air. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was just, like, that That was a moment where we were like, oh, my God, if we can't—are we going to be able to get this closed? If not, what are we going to do? And then, it, you know, as these things, you know, these inflection points, I think it was, like, the next week, you know, somebody finally was like, you know— Put, they put their stake <laughs> in the ground, or yeah, like we, or we, I can't remember. We kind of just hit that critical mass of a round where we were like, okay, we can see, we can see the path to closing, yeah, and we can actually set a date. Um, you mentioned but, Kenny Lair, Lair Ventures is one of your investors, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, they, yeah, yeah. He led our first, our, our seed round. I had an uncomfortable, but I think successful interview with him here. <laughs> Why uncomfortable? Because <laughs> um, when Kenny is upset with you, he tells you mm. in no, in no uncertain terms. It was good. Um, <laughs> We mentioned, accomplished. we mentioned Instagram, um, and that seems to be an obvious place for you guys, and it uh-huh. has worked out um, not spending a lot of resources on Facebook. I used to ask people when they came in, you know, about their whole platform strategy, and now people seem less interested in it. But but where are you guys publishing or doing business out beyond your website? Instagram is our biggest channel outside of our Sort of all of our, you know, owned and operated email, which is obviously our own, is a huge, hugely important channel for us in terms of readership, revenue from the shop, and also just engagement, maintaining, you know, maintaining that sort of back and forth dialogue that's so important to our business. Uh, But Instagram is, you know, there's so many great things about it that are just sort of perfectly tailored to what we do. And, and it just gives mm-hmm. us the capabilities to do so many things that are sort of already part of our day-to-day and put them on a different platform, tweak them slightly, you know, whether it's creating a different cut of a video that we've done that's going up on the site, you know, or on Facebook that's, you know, shorter and and more kind of, um, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? Snappy. That's the word. Uh, <laughs> Does a Food 52 Instagram post look substantially different than another food publication's Instagram post? Can I tell them apart? I mean, Tasty at one point pioneered that very specific view, which everyone took, everyone copied. Um, would I be able to tell that's a Food 52 Instagram post if I didn't see the label? Well, that, that's a really good question because I think, you know, there are definitely— in the, the the food space, there are certain accounts where they have a very particular like thing that they a look, um, or certain kinds of foods that they do. Right, we don't. Ours is more general, and actually, it was really our Instagram account was very much built by celebrating 
um, regrams yeah. of people from our community. And so the there is a there's a consistency to the aesthetic, but there's definitely not that like identifiable like this is our look. And so it's much more about like the photo and its caption, and then the caption is like the the voice of our brand, which is kind of like you know lively and and funny, enthusiastic, and so. I think it's more that, whereas if you come to our site, I think there's a more particular kind of visual aesthetic. And we just felt like the whole beauty of Instagram is like this ability to kind of like celebrate others and have it really be this kind of community focus for us. And we'll do the same thing with Home 52. But in terms of like like where we, our, our goal is to like meet people where they're at, right? And so Instagram is a big uh, way of doing that email. We're looking at text. Um, you know, Pinterest actually has been a bit of a mystery for us. Yeah. Um, it does fine for us, but it's an area that we feel like has a lot of potential to grow if, if only we can figure it out. Um, Have you expressed that to them? In, Recently, yes. yes. Yeah. We're making some strides. And then off, you know, offline. So, you know, we've done tons of events over the years. We've done pop-ups, but we're planning a, a physical location. And I say an that, actual store. I, yeah. Well, we're not mm. using the word store. <laughs> Because we feel like it's it's different from that. I, we're um, the placeholder is an outpost. Okay, an experience. Mm, it's a it, there's it's, a retail component to uh -huh. it, but there's also yes a a an ability to participate and and watch and be inspired and ask questions and, and eat. gather. Yes, exactly. Manage <laughs> yeah. to raise your eyebrows. Then. All right, I'm there. <laughs> I'm coming. Um, I wrote about you in the fall when you sold. A majority stake <laughs> in the company, which you I did? think, which I think is the same as selling the company. Uh, it's now owned by the Chernin Group. Um, how did you get to that point? Beyond the fact that you built a company over ten years, at what point or is this you going to the Chernin Group, or is someone they, are they coming to you? Were you considering other sales? I think you have to tell your story. Well. Yeah. Um, so in October of 2018, they reached out. And at the time, we had just launched our, the first product in our product line, and we were in Q4, which is our busiest quarter. It represents 40% of our revenue for the year. And I was like, sorry, can't talk. Let's try in the new year. And <laughs> it's one of and those, it worked. <laughs> it's one of those things where I kind of look back and like, you know, want to smack myself on the forehead. Like, what was I thinking? But um, and then we talked. We did talk in January. They followed up, which yeah. was great. And I think actually sort of a good sign Says that they, they really, you know, it was a sincere outreach, not just like a gathering data for some other deal. So we had a conversation and it happened to coincide with, a, you know, interest from other growth equity as well as strategics. Um, you know, I think that any any interesting growing media company is certainly getting inbound from strategics these days because media is in turmoil. But so that wasn't wait, wait, like a big... unpack that for a unpack second. Unpack that, yeah. Media is in turmoil, usually gets translated as no one wants to buy a media company. And I think there's well, a counter to that, which we're going to talk about. But Well, I think, I think strategics are looking for media companies that have interesting and innovative revenue models. We ch definitely check that box. Yep. And also there's the, you know, there are also media companies who are looking for inexpensive yep. properties. And so it just, you know, all of these things kind of um, coincided at the same time. But, you know, our conversations with the Turning Group were just like we instantly connected with them and felt like they understood our, like, no, they are, they are, they're the first to say, like, we're not food experts, um, but they really understand community and building a, a meaningful brand and media. And they're really, um, they know a bit about commerce and are really interested in, in wanting to be sort of more engaged in that space. And so, and, you know, if you look across their portfolio, it might seem like we might seem like an oddball. You but know, they're all kind of oddball. There's well, headspace, which is meditation. There's yeah, a there's but, a meat yes, meat, meat eater, which meat is eater. great. Yeah. and I mean they're all they just they're owned, all they own Barstool until yes. just recently. Yeah, um, which is has nothing to do with any of those things. It's for bros who like sports and people but who like those bros. The common thread is that they have all of these brands have extremely passionate, loyal mm -hmm. followings. Yeah. And so I think, you know, once we saw that, you know, it just felt like such a, a natural fit. And so we, you know, continued the conversation. And, and yeah, and so basically almost uh, a year to the day later is when we closed. So it's 10 years of building a company. It's a mm -hmm. lot of work. You guys have families. 
I'm assuming there was an offer from someone to just sell the entire thing and you could have some sort of employment agreement, but then you're done. You don't own the company anymore. You guys have structured a deal we're used to. And this was the sticking point I think we were having back and forth <laughs> last fall. Is you guys still own a, a significant stake in the company. Churning Group owns it, but you guys have a – so if the company does better, presumably at some point Churning Group might find another buyer for it. You guys will benefit for it. I can see all the reasons to do that, but I can also see you guys saying – this is really hard. We should do something else. This 10 years building a thing is a like, ton of work. Nothing great that you do is easy, you know? And I think that's like, <laughs> yes, there have been very many very hard moments. But also, we're getting to build something that we want and that we think that is like needed in the world. And, that, and that's like super cool and super lucky. So, yeah, we want to keep doing that. You know, and also like we're in this, it's not like we... We went to business school and we were like, oh, here's an opportunity in this market. Let's go after it. Which is and fine. Then, and which is totally fine. I, mean, I wish some more people, people would be it. honest about saying that, by the way. Yeah. yeah. It is. This, is. this is why instead of making up a story about how they wanted to sell well, it. Well, it's, it's, it's fine, someone. except that when you're up against those companies fundraising and investors are like, well, that, you know, here's the trustworthy MBA versus like the experts like that. That, you know, was a frustration for us. But anyway, I'm kind of um, digressing. Um, You know, I think that for us, you know, this is the industry that we're obsessed with and that we want to, you know, do innovative things, you know, and and I think that, you know, having, so for us, like the churning group, like they're supportive of that and they are super excited to like get behind it. So to to us, that's why like we weren't looking to get out. Sure, we were, you know, after 10 years, you want to de-risk or you want, you know, your early employees or your early investors to uh, be able to um, sort of— Get some money back. Realize, yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah be, have, have their investment recognized. recognized yeah. yeah. But, and it, of course, we sleep better at night now, right? I mean, that that's the other big difference is that, you know, when we got to those moments of worrying about runway— Except in the very beginning, we were, you know, we were the stewards of this group of people and this business, and the buck stopped with us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now we have support and support from people that we really like and we really love working with. I was going to ask how life has changed besides the fact that you guys were able to get some money personally, presumably, and and distribute money to your investors and employees. Um, Any other practical changes in the way the business operates now that you're no longer the owner? Well, so the other thing, and I think this is something that we didn't recognize immediately with TCG, is that, you know, it's led by people who have operated businesses. And it's astonishing how big of a difference that 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 makes us like sort of day-to-day partners. And, I, you know, they've... like already like helped us figure out a bunch of things that were like I I just I'm not sure our previous board would have been able to necessarily I mean they may have wanted to try to help us with but like it's there's just something different about you know working with people who have you know run teams done a lot of hiring you know reorganized things and like you know just you know they helped us basically come up we were trying to revamp our our strategic planning and we kind of got stuck. And they were the kids came in and they were like, well, hey, you know, here, take a look at this method that we've used in the past. See what you think. And we were like, oh. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that is fantastic. Thank, Thank you very you. much. We're going <laughs> to just take that and implement that whole thing. We're at an interesting time because I think well, lots of media companies are trying to find other revenue sources. A lot of them are interested in commerce. This one certainly is that I'm working at. Um, you guys have figured out commerce to a degree. There's also been this big run in direct-to-consumer stuff where you see brands that don't have any media going out and sort of creating their own brand on Instagram. Um, A lot of them have grown very quickly. And then you're also seeing a lot of them sort of hit the public market. The Casper just had problems. There's a lot of now skepticism about, oh, maybe you can't grow these retail things. So on the one hand, there's, I think, a lot of optimism on the media side about retail sounds great. And there's a lot of folks who are starting, who've been running small retail businesses for a while saying, oh, we've got a problem here. Well, I think even big retail businesses are feeling yes, that too. Yes, as well. Right? I yeah. mean, so wh- I, where, do you, where do you think this works for you? I mean, where do you think this goes for you? Do you push more into retail and commerce? Do you bolster the media side? Do you try to hedge your bets? I think you focus on the relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is what we've been. And, and I, I'm sorry to go back to something that I know it's like, it's hard to measure, right? But it's like, we have this passionate audience and I think making sure that we are like the resource for them 
and like serving them really, really well. And that they turn to us, they think of us like first when they're figuring out what they're going to cook for dinner or if they're buying someone, you know, another person who likes food, a holiday gift, um, you know, or if they need to, let, you know, they, they have a question about cooking and they know the place to come and ask. Yeah, I mean, we're always responding to them and listening to them. And one practical, you know, way that this comes into play is with our emails. So we're in the process of really sort of revisiting our emails, strategy, design, cadence, all of that, and really breaking our audience down into very specific cohorts or personas based on their behavior and based on what they've shown an interest in previously or not. And you know, also giving them the opportunity to say, hey, I actually only want to receive emails that are editorial, or I'm not really interested in the writing. I just want to see your best new products. But also, we can we can tell from the data what some of their preferences are. And so, what we don't want to be doing going forward is trying to shove, you know, products down the throats of loyal readers who just aren't interested in shopping from us. It's um, a real tension though, right? Because that's eventually how you're going to make money is getting them to buy a pan. Well, right? no. I mean, we do I mean, We do have advertising. We, sure. I mean, we still, it's not that, we're, we're not abandoning that. And no. there are also, you know, there are lots of, there are other, you know, revenue streams um, either in development or that we maybe haven't even thought of yet. Like, I, I, I think that we feel like if you have this passionate following, there are ways to monetize it. Um, successfully, I, I think if we're just trying to like get everyone to convert on our shop, we're going to lose people. How many users do you have? How many folks are visiting you? Well, across our platforms, it's around I'd say eighteen million a month. And that includes Instagram. And then how, yeah. how many on the sites that you you own yeah, or so the like, properties you own? Yeah, our our site, and that would be our email list. I mean, so, so eighteen million all in. Yeah, that's there's yeah. obviously um, overlap. Some yes. Yeah. So again, like for a media company. Pretty modest, right? <laughs> but you sold the you sold. I want to make sure I get my numbers right. You sold the majority stake, yeah. in the company for eighty three million dollars, right? That's correct. Yeah. So, I think a lot of folks would be very happy to turn their eighteen million users into that kind of valuation, um, and are probably scratching their head, going, "How how did they do that? And how do we do that?" But maybe that's the second podcast. <laughs> part two. All right. Can we do part two at some point? Sure, we'd love, love to. to. Meryl, Amanda, thank you for coming by. Thank you for being patient with me. Um, texting me occasionally when you thought I had a problem with my writing. <laughs> Always open to uh, critiques, compliments. Um, thanks to you guys for listening. This is Recode Media. We'll see you next week.